I think I left Christianity. And um, what survived from it, I think, is the mythic. I have a feeling that something new wants to be born in the world. Hi, my name is Josh Chambers, and welcome to How Humans Change. Every episode, we speak with someone who's undergone some kind of change, and we get the backstory. In this episode, we spoke with Kent Dobson, author of Bitten by a Camel, Leaving Christianity, Finding God. And the subtitle of that book is what we discuss this episode. What does it look like to leave a formal religion, but still pursue the divine? Kent grew up in a conservative Christian home. He attended Jerry Falwell's college. His dad worked for Jerry Falwell. He eventually went and studied biblical studies in Israel and became the lead pastor at an influential megachurch in the U.S. And then he left. Now, unlike other stories where someone leaves a former religion and then runs in the opposite direction and chooses atheism, Kent is still pursuing the divine. He's doing that on a personal level and even professionally still, although he is no longer working for a Christian church. So we flip-flopped between Kent's own personal story and then Kent's observations around faith, spirituality, for this generation, Gen Y, Gen X, and younger. And we talked about what do you teach your kids now? Uh, what happens to society when formal religious institutions morph or even die? And what might be next? If you're a longtime listener, please give us a great review on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're new to the show, we have an amazing archive of great conversations. Please subscribe. And for all of you, please consider sharing this with a friend. These episodes seem to do really well when people share them with someone who's been through a similar circumstance or similar situation. Worst case scenario, you can post it on Facebook and then watch it devolve into a terrible political debate. Anyway, without further ado, here is Kent Dobson. It's, I'm so glad that we're talking. I heard you on the Robcast, however many months ago that was. I listened to your book um, and loved it. And I'm so excited to talk to you about the whole thing, the whole experience. There's like, I want to be sensitive to how annoying it probably is to get asked to retell your book. Um, but um, the audience that we have, obviously the podcast about people changing. And I think there's so many beautiful moments in your story of personal change. So if we just focus on on that, and then every now and again, if you want to put on your intellectual cap and just have some observational insights around culture and how people change, particularly spiritually, that would be awesome. Yep. Great. Awesome. Well, why don't you start with just the, are you cool talking about the camel story? Are you sick of that yet? Well, I, I rarely talk about it to tell you the truth. Yeah. I mean, um, cause I usually tell people, yeah, read the book, but no, I, we can start there. It's no problem. Why don't you start there? Because uh, one of the places I want to go is eventually talking about what made, like, what wired you, and if you were predisposed to just leave your tribe. Because it's such a seems like it's a rare thing to be able to do that. And listening to your book, you were talking about how that even seemed to start at a young age. Um, yeah. But for the context, it seemed like the the like a culminating event in your adulthood was 
climbing Mount Sinai, getting your arm chewed by a camel. Yeah. And being like, what just happened? Yeah. Um, the, you know, yes, I climbed Mount Sinai and I was, I was bitten by a camel. That's the short story. And what was it? A, was it a big event in my life? Um, yes. And it took me sort of five or more years to see it that way. At the time, I was just genuinely and seriously looking for something. I mean, I think I would have said I was looking for God. I was looking for, you know, a more healthy spirituality. I was, I was running from my fundamentalist evangelical past. Yeah. But I wasn't, wasn't ready maybe just to chuck the whole thing. Um, and I was kind of in love with all things old, like Judaism and monks and... Yeah. Old, old mountains and archaeological sites. And um, yeah, so, so in the book I talk about um, going to Mount Sinai as part of a class, a graduate class. And I tried to take it like privately as seriously as I could. So I mm -hmm. tried to fast. Um, I ascended the mountain in the middle of the night for the sunrise. And in a very straightforward way, I was basically asking God for some help. Like, what should yeah. I do with my life? I don't know if I can stay in this thing anymore, meaning Christianity or whatever I was in. Yeah. Um, and, but I really wanted like just a pointer, like some, like point me in the right direction. And mm -hmm. practically I was wondering if I should stay on in Israel, more graduate school or move back home, but I didn't really want to. And, and in the, you know, in the story, I talk about everything about that event was unlike the, yeah, what I imagined yes. it to be. It just all was the so, opposite. Totally. It was uh, filled with tourists and um, generators and Bedouin tents selling hot chocolate. And <laughs> um, I was severely underdressed and I was freezing to death. So funny. And the little the little know, moment in the in the book where you you found a dirty like stuck in the ground, you found a dirty winter hat uh, and put that on your head cuz you were so cold. <laughs> I was so cold. I I was wearing someone's nasty like trampled hat. Um, and then when the sun finally came up, people started singing the Beatles, here comes the sun. And, and, and it was just like so confusing. Yeah. And, um, and at the same time, I'm trying to pray. Like I didn't really, I'm not much of a prayer or I never was, but I was trying to pray. You know, I was like saying some Psalms. I was asking for help and, and I just felt deflated. So then you started to descend the mountain. Yeah. Camel grabbed me off of the trail, fetched me, and just grabbed hold of my arm and slung me around for a while. And it was like quite severe, you know, it's Jeez, like, man. there's no exaggeration in the book. Um, wow. And, you know, I, and it took me a long time to see that as a kind of invitation or, yeah. a, or a symbol in my yeah. life for my own faith, expectations, and ideas no longer working. Yeah. And... And, and I had to descend. I could no longer, I had to go down. <laughs> Whatever down meant, that was the direction. Well, I think one of the things that's so beautiful about the story, and I want to give you a chance to give people some context of your professional background and where you grew up and all that jazz, but 
I, I myself have experienced this, and I, I think a lot of the people we, we talk to that have experienced change have experienced this moment where you had a you had a rule book, a playbook, and you executed it flawlessly, and then none of the expected outcomes came back the way they were supposed to according to the rule book. So yeah. if you go to Israel as a Christian and you climb literally the holiest mountain on earth, and you do all the things right, you fast, and you get up in the middle of the night, and then to get your ass handed to you by a camel, and to have people singing the beetle, like none of it, none of the, the, none of the outputs match the inputs. Yeah. And I, I think that I can really relate to that, where I've spent a couple times in my life where I tried really, like I took a risk where I tried something really big, and it just... None of not like it wasn't necessarily that the results were bad. They just were so far from what was supposed to happen that it really shook me up. Yeah. Especially I think on that spiritual front. Yeah. And that was true of my entire experience in Israel. Mm. Uh, even even down to the nitty gritty of graduate work where all right so my faith is supposed to be somehow connected to the Bible. So let's take a serious, thoughtful look at this thing mm -hmm. and ask, what is it? How does it work? How did it come to be? And that is a, it's a fun rabbit hole to go down, but you do not reach the bottom and be like, oh yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking. Yeah. No, everything about it comes apart. And, wow. and it's kind of fun and it's exhilarating, but it's also especially if you're a Protestant, it's also really disorienting. Did that happen for everybody go. in that class, Ken? Or was that just you? It's amazing how strong the ego works to patch up inconsistencies uh, and ambiguities. Mm -hmm. So no, it doesn't happen to everyone that goes to graduate school. Um, but it happened for a lot of my friends. Wow. And... It's like, it's, it's like the Wizard of Oz. You see behind the curtain, you're like, oh, there's a dude back yeah. there. And he's making a lot of a noise, but he's just a dude behind a curtain. And actually, that's one of the things I like about the Bible now, that there are dudes, mostly, mm -hmm. or probably exclusively, <laughs> behind the curtain. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's just that, that kind of the Word of God sort of falling from the sky does not work. It doesn't work. And so for context, you, you grew up in fundamentalistic Christian. Your dad worked for Jerry Falwell. You mm -hmm. went to a private Christian school and eventually were working for a church and your graduate degree was biblical studies. Yeah, I was pretty much like a model um, on a piece of paper, uh, sort of a uh, the model evangelical. Yeah. So my dad worked for Falwell. I went to Falwell's college. It wasn't just a private oh, okay. Christian school. It was his. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, uh, and, um, from there then pretty shortly after graduation was part of a startup church, Mars Hill here in Michigan. And, um, but then it sort of like was ready to move on. And that's what brought me, brought me to Israel. But did I bite like, was the hook firmly in my mouth? No, I don't know if it really was. Mm. Um, I mean, I sort of had a back and forth kind of 
rebellious, I'm sorry, I'm back in kind of thing for high school, even college. So I was not, you know, I wasn't up there, you know, singing praise songs on the praise team at my college. I was like, sort of had one foot in and one foot like, out. Like, redefine rebellion in, in this context, because in, in this world, rebellion might mean that you danced once or you had a sip of a beer, which you, which you talk <laughs> about in the book. Or was it kind of like off the deep end? Well, I wouldn't say off the deep end. I did a lot of drugs in, in high school. And, um, and I, you know, was in bands and, you know, listened to Pearl Jam and Rage Against the Machine. And that was definitely not allowed. Those bands were... No, no, it was not allowed. No. Um, in fact, I remember one time I, my, my mom was like, uh, she found this tape. This is back in the tape Mm -hmm. days. For for those of you just joining (laughs) us, there were these things called tapes. (laughs) And, uh. It, it was an Alice in Chains tape. Oh, yeah. And I remember they, that she found this tape, and, and then my parents had to confront me. And they, they were usually hands-off about these kinds of things, believe it or not. Huh. Maybe they, like, they didn't want to know. That doesn't line up with uh, what I was expecting. Yeah. I think they, my dad liked to keep things light, and maybe they just didn't want to look, look too deeply into the well. Huh. But anyway, they're like, do you know what this means? I was like, uh, what, what means? So like, Alice in Chains? I was like, I don't know. It means that Alice was in Chains? I mean, but I, don't, I, I still to this day have no idea, like, what line of thought they were I was going to ask, where, where were, they, were going they going with, with that? that? <laughs> I have no idea. But they're like, well, you can't listen to this. I was like, okay, well. So then you listen to it, one, like, you even can... more. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So I guess that was what I meant by rebellion. Okay. And, and then I started getting curious, too, about other worldviews. And um, I was, this is really, um, I, I'm hesitant to even uh, say what I'm about to say, but uh, one of my neighbors growing up uh, when I was in junior high, basically, was a gay man. He lived with his partner. Mm-hmm. and And this was totally like, unusual for this suburban Michigan town. Yeah. We didn't, I didn't know any gay people or I wasn't aware that I knew yeah. gay people, but to have like this sort of very obviously down the street and we would torment him, mm. pull little pranks, um, call him names, things like mm-hmm. this. And, um, inside I didn't feel good about this, but, um, I don't know. It was like the thing to yeah. do and as a junior higher. Yeah. And, um, but he left, he, he ended up leaving the neighborhood mm. and, I, and I would say I'm responsible for that. And that actually wow. kind of shook me up as I got to later high school and something really disturbed me about my own behavior. In fact, I wrote a play about it in wow. college. I, I studied e- English and, and, it's amazing that you college. were that you were that aware of it. How were you that aware of? Because in your in your, I mean, that's not an atypical junior high thing to do. To just be an asshole to people is not, and it's all in good fun and innocence when you're that age. But how did you make the connection that you were having a impact on this person that went beyond just innocent teasing? Because he left the neighborhood. Jeez. You know, I mean, he he moved out. And what conclusion can you draw from that? 
I, I mean, I've, I've never talked to this person since wow. being 13 years old, but I imagine if I saw him, he would say, yeah, I left because you were an asshole. Wow. Um, you and your little junior high pals. So, and what inspired that? I don't know. I, I guess in a way, rock and roll and Pearl Jam and <laughs> grunge music mm-hmm. put a crack in the, uh, in the shell of my own worldview. And I didn't want to be like that. And, and I don't know how conscious I was of, yeah. of what I would now call an evolving or changing worldview or, or shift in consciousness. I didn't have any language for it. I just didn't want to be like that or had maybe moved on and yeah. then realized it. Wait a minute. I don't really think like that anymore. And what's going on? And that's part of the reason why I wrote a play about it, just to try to work through it. You know? That's crazy. It's, I've had these experiences, Kent, where I would... Um, it's like... Okay, m- using musician language, I love music also. And I think music had a way of, I don't know, saving me in some ways in, in a lot of moments in my life. But I feel like there were these moments here and there in my own personal faith journey too, where it was like a guitar string broke, but I ignored it. Like it's that feeling where just something clicks, like the, the, someone says one little thing and all of a sudden you just like, bing, the thing breaks and I felt it break and I feel it uh, happen. But then I, at the time I wasn't equipped to do anything with it. Like I remember this one time for me where I was um, in my, oh, I don't know, like early, early 20s and it was during the Bush era. And I was on a snowboarding forum, a website, and I, I don't know what I was talking about, something stupid. And um, in the middle of this forum, as they could only do in the late 90s and early 2000s, the forum, of course, devolves into people shouting at each other about politics. Mm-hmm. And one of the guys uh, in caps lock screams, we're going into an unjust war. Wake up, America. This is when we were about to enter into the Iraq war. The second one. And it was like this little guitar string broke. I don't know. I have no idea why in that moment on a snowboarding forum, that guy in caps lock who was being a dick did something to me. But it was some, some, in that moment, something happened. And years later, I was able to look back and say, I don't know what happened, but something about the way that that guy was that passionate about this war not being just caused me to just look at it just for a second with a critical eye. Because at that time, I was fully on board with whatever i wouldn't say i was fully on board but i was a lot less skeptical or critical of what was going on politically but i didn't know that that thing had happened at all and i feel like there's all these tiny little moments along the way that have happened like that where i'm like wait something just happened but Mm -hmm. it's not until years later where i'm able to make any sense of it yeah and actually i think um things like that happen frequently for people but sometimes i have the sense that they don't have, or at times I didn't have, the psychological maturity or the spiritual maturity to integrate that. Yeah. So it can, it tends to exist as kind of an anomaly and it's possible to go back. Sometimes it's not. Maybe like your guitar string breaks about the war and you can't go back. Yeah. But, but some people, they have a shift or they have a, a tiny moment of awakening, but they they're, don't have the 
I guess, psychological maturity to integrate that, to mm-hmm. say, to pull, because it tends to sink right back down into the unconscious. Yeah. And, and you, don't, you don't have any tools to keep it. Well, there's nothing to plug it into either, because a lot of times I feel like this is how changes worked in my life sometimes, because the, a a lot of times the thing that gets woke, awoken or broken is, would require so much rejiggering of everything else that there's just no socket to plug it into. It's just impossible. So for example, you talked about in the book about really encountering evolution and thinking about evolution and for a kid who grows up in a christian home who's told that the earth is six thousand years old you got no framework to plug that into it just breaks everything it's just kind of and by the way for what it's worth one of my questions for you you there's this beautiful quote in the book where you talk about being in seventh grade and you said god said it like basically the idea was god said it i believe it that settles it was the way that you were supposed to look at things but you weren't able Mm -hmm. to do that no. Why not? Like, what was it about you? <laughs> this is where I start to trust um, what I guess what I would call the soul that some deep self knows and mm. has yet to be born in the world. And if you want to take it in a more Jungian sort of direction, um, that may not be so personal. Uh, like you inherit, according to Jung, you, uh, you inherit mm-hmm. um, a bit of unconscious material. You could call it your, your kind of um, psychological DNA. And so maybe it's not my own doing. Maybe, maybe there were seeds in my ancestors that couldn't bite on what religion was serving. Even my, my dad, who was a pastor, and my grandfather was a pastor, maybe something of their spirit, or maybe from my mom's side, um, it is, was unsettled um, and mm. was still working through questions. So I don't know. Sometimes I think that that's, that's the case. Um, and You just showed up that way, wired that way. Yeah, I think so. Um, I feel like that's the only explanation I've been able to come up with too for some of these things because how you can have two people who grow up in the exact same neighborhood, the exact same, no one has the exact same experience, but similar experiences. And one person's like, yeah, I buy this. And the other person's like, I don't buy this for no, what appears to be no good reason. What do we do then? How how has that changed how you look at other people and their evolution or lack thereof? Well, I mean... (laughs) Oh, yeah. Well, you might have to start a podcast that deals entirely with this question, like (laughs) how people change. (laughs) Um, Oh, man. Uh, I think, you know, I tend to lean in the direction that there's something like stages of consciousness at work. Um, Something like Ken Wilber's uh, spiral dynamic. Well, he didn't invent spiral dynamics, but something along those lines or what's that or uh, spiral dynamics yeah. or ken wilber yeah um, tell us tell us what that is well these are essentially uh states or stages of consciousness that one evolves up and out um sort of in a spiral kind of fashion and the simple ones would be you can go from pre-rational to rational 
and these are major life shifting, you know, and then on up the spiral, you can go all, all the way up to, um, uh, integral he would call. And then there's, there are even stages beyond that. So, um, the reason why I'm mentioning that is because I think all people have the capacities to uh, evolve and change. I don't think you're just, some people are predisposed to it and other pe people aren't. Um, but you can have any arrested development at any stage of consciousness. And that can, that can, on the one hand, have to do with a bit of your own personality, but it might have to do with the social context, education, um, uh, family dynamics, um, economic status, all kinds of things mm -hmm. can stunt one's uh, propensity to grow. And that's also a, another thing that, that is important to say, that these kinds of theories about stages or stages or states of consciousness is really coming up out of the natural world, that there are cycles. There are life cycles to things, and things naturally grow and change. Um, but for some reason, when it comes to human consciousness, that can get stunted mm. very easily yeah. through, through traumas, wounds, um, and also successes. Like you think about Trump as a caricature, he's very stunted in his uh, psychological and spiritual uh, development. Mm -hmm. And probably what has stunted him the most is success. Mm. Um, it's been all about winning, and now he thinks he's the ultimate winner. Well, that's not going to teach anything. You're going to remain stuck, in this case, in a very egocentric or ethnocentric level of consciousness. Mm -hmm. um, so how do you grow and change? I mean, part of it is that you have to kind of explore the full territory um, and through uh, largely through the work of mystery and a little bit of will, mm -hmm. usually circumstances f sort of push you um, with, but with a little bit of invitation into the next meme. Um, you, you get to the limits. A great, a great example, by the way, is if you take ethnocentric consciousness, which is my tribe is the best tribe, mm -hmm. which most Christians are still in today. Mm -hmm. Well, one trip to, I don't know, Guatemala with your youth group, and that can fall apart. Now, usually it, it doesn't always yeah, for kids, yeah. but it can. It really can fall apart. Wait a minute. I'm not the center of the universe. Mm -hmm. And... These kids are happier and they don't have shoes. I thought if I brought them shoes, that would make them happy. Turns out I'm learning they're happier than I am and they don't have freaking shoes nor an iPhone 8. Yeah. So that, that, if that goes deep, that's earth shattering. And that can, that can help push someone from ethnocentric to world centric. Mm -hmm. There you are. Suddenly, um, uh, you, f you find yourself unable to go back home to the tribe, still convinced you're right. I wonder how some people can go take a vacation to another country or experience a completely different culture and never, it never ever penetrates their world the way that it did with me the first time I left. I went to South America and I was like, oh my gosh, this is everything. Like my, my horizons got irreversibly broadened. And I'm always like, okay, is that just DNA? What is that? Because some people go have those experiences and it doesn't seem to do anything. Some people, it, it does something for maybe a few months and then some people, it's never the same again. Hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, good. Oh yeah, totally. Good point. 
And I don't know what the alchemical <laughs> mixture is there. And some of it, honestly, I think some of it is um, psychological uh, health. And um, So you, like, being psychologically healthy allows for that? Actually, I, th- I think so. Huh. I, I mean, I, I'm not a psychotherapist, but I, sometimes I think you need to be healthy enough to really have your worldview pulled apart. If you're very unhealthy, it will never be pulled apart because you've got too many coping strategies, coping mechanisms, stories, myths, legends to support you in your own delusions. Yeah, and and it seems like even listening to the story that you told in the book, that each each of these little moments does something, incrementally tears something away to the point where you're finally either so broken that you try to, you need to reboot and then you get psychologically healthy or you maybe get to a point where you've got some more psychological help so that you can then retroactively make sense of some of the things that have happened. Cause I think about mm-hmm. some of the things like my first experience going overseas was mind blowing in the sense that I was like, this is crazy. This is so crazy that this is all happening outside of my world all the time that's mind-blowing they have different flowers here they have different vehicles (laughs) here just stupid things that you wouldn't you just you can't even imagine thinking about until you're there and yet i came back with you know pretty similar framework and worldview than i had when i went there but something happened which set off a chain of events that 15 years later 20 years later actually had a larger impact anyway so you wrote a book about this, which everybody who's listening should read. But if you, if you wouldn't mind talking through chronologically some of the things that happened after you got down off that mountain that really caused you to evolve and shift in your thinking, not the least of which was becoming a pastor of a megachurch and then leaving a pastor of, as a pastor of a megachurch. Yeah. So, yeah, if you're listening, in my experience, uh, change happens very slowly. So... Mm-hmm. That, we don't like that, actually, as a sort of industrial growth society because we think there must be a nonstop flight to whatever it is that I'm seeking because who would want to, like, stop off in Minneapolis on the way to Seattle? Mm-hmm. You know, there's got to be a nonstop flight. But doesn't, that doesn't appear to be the case, and that certainly wasn't the case for me. So chronologically, so some key events. I came down the mountain, um, and I decided to move back to the States. Mm-hmm only to not get a job back at Mars Hill, the church I left. And um, I moved back to Israel. So I was like, oh, God, I'll do it again. Mm-hmm. I moved back to Israel, and I, and I thought, the academic path. So I went for a comparative religion. And um, very sort of personally fun to study, but fatiguing. Hmm. I'm back in Israel. I'm going into debt. And a white male teaching comparative religion was like, uh, there weren't probably he's not. I'm probably not going to get a job. And at this point, you're you've you've been married through all of this. And at this point, did you have any of your yeah. kids yet? Yeah, I have two two kids at this point. So two kids living in Israel. Um, and and you, I'm cutting um, you off, but you went. If if I'm not mistaken, you sort of went there like with a with a decent amount of uncertainty. It it didn't. It's stuff starting to fall apart at this point in your framework, right? Yeah, and I'm trying to patch it back together. Um, Or I'm trying to negotiate. Mm. I I wouldn't have said that at the time, but I'm trying to negotiate. And this is what I mean. 
Um, I know that the flood is not intended to be read literally. I know that. But I'm not, I don't really need to tell anybody that. Except maybe like mm. a few people over a few beers. Um, so I'll just keep, I'll keep my personal cards close to my chest. That's the kind of mood I was in. And meanwhile, I can keep going on my own self-exploration into these things. And evangelicalism wasn't looking, working for me. So maybe I can join the Orthodox Church or become Catholic or Episcopalian. So I was kind of starting to think along those lines, like older must be better. Yeah which is pretty common, by the way, for people. Um, And so I got a job at a Christian high school. I I was also starting to lead tours to Israel. And so a group came, and one of the donors, I think, for the school said, you ought to teach high school. And actually, I kind of wanted to. I wanted to turn around some of the stuff I had been learning. That's cool. I sort of felt, hey, I was cheated in the kind of Bible I was handed, so I'm not going to cheat these kids. So that's what I, I did. I came back from Israel. I taught high school at a religious high school, and I uh, also did a program for the Discovery Channel on the historical Jesus during this time mm. period. Weird set of circumstances, but it came out. They hated it and fired me. <laughs> yeah. What? I don't think I mentioned no, that in the book. No, you don't. But this, what in the world? Yeah. Tell me that story. <laughs> Well, I just did. That's it. I made a, I made a program. And it was really cool because um, the Discovery Channel came to me after I had been on the History Channel for something else. And they, I wasn't a producer, but I got to sort of help produce okay. it. Like, who, who would you want to talk to? And I just went down the list. Here are the scholars that I like. And, and at the time, the Discovery Channel was starting to go, or they thought about going in a more religious direction. Like, let's do a whole series of programs right. on these various okay. characters. Like which is, which is, had been done before. But, um, so I made this one on Jesus and then they, they said, we're not doing that. We're going for whatever, naked and afraid, or who knows what they were into at that point. The school that I was working for said, we can't have a teacher in the classroom who has questions about God or the oh, Bible. Man. You're supposed to have the answers, which I kind of knew anyway. I was working there with my fingers crossed, which is not good for the soul in the yeah. long run. Um, but they fired me. I, I, it aired on a Saturday. On Monday, um, I went in and they fired me. They said, you can't come back to work. I never saw my students again. I said, let me come in and say goodbye to them and explain things. No. You, oh, that's messed up. Not, they can't even look at you. Oh, it was totally that's messed up. That's super. I mean, the firing is messed up, but that's even more messed up. Yeah. But, you know, I, I wow. kind of, I took a risk knowing, hey, I might work my, I don't know, this, I'm going to, for me to be honest, is going to be a problem in the long run, and so maybe it saw it coming. You know. Yeah. So when you get fi- when you so, left, are you like, yes, this is freedom, no, or are you just no. like, this? What's going on with my life? No, and this might actually relate to how people change because I think if I was like, sort of, f the man, you know, the vic played the victim. I don't think it would have. I would have changed hmm. very much. But actually, I felt kind of demoralized, defeated, and misunderstood. And that pushed me further on, the, on my own journey. Like, wait a minute. What is really true for me? How can I live authentically in the world? What is authenticity? You know, was maybe a more pressing question at the time. 
Um, and it, it pushed me further. Mm. And I ended up working for another sort of more liberal Christian school until I took the megachurch pastor job from after Rob Bell left Mars Hill. Then I took his job, mm-hmm. basically. And, uh, and we were friends, and it kind of made a nice story. Like, he started this church. I worked there for a while doing the music, and then now I'm back, yeah. you know. Yep. <laughs> um, but that was, again, me ne- doing more negotiations. Like, all right, this is kind of on a progressive track that I'm comfortable with. And, um, and that's, it just sort of very slowly circumstances, people and ideas were, I realized I'm in the wrong place. And you tell the story in the book about a particular sermon where you're basically looking out over the crowd and having an out-of-body experience and realizing this isn't working. Like you're watching yourself realize this isn't working. Yeah. I don't know what a therapist would call this, but some sort of like uh, dissociation maybe, or, or maybe you could put it in more transcendent terms. My, some part of myself was watching Mm -hmm. myself and this kind of scared me. I, I, the feeling was who is that guy talking? Who is that person? And what the hell is he talking about? And um, that was the beginning of more sort of soul searching and, um, and, and eventually led to, led to me stepping down saying, I, I can't do this anymore. Um, I think maybe for a while I thought I could change the thing from within. And I actually have a tremendous amount of respect for people who take that path. There are a lot of creative, um, honorable pastors and teachers and leaders who are, are saying things like, I can't buy all of this, but I'm going to try to change it from within. I couldn't do that. I, I could not. I, I just didn't have it in me. And I realized I got to leave. And if I'm going to go further on my journey, I have to leave home. I have to totally abandon ship. Yeah, definitely. Um, I was standing at the kitchen window and I said to my wife, I'm done. She's like, okay. I went in and told the elders basically two days later. And I had kind of in my mind developed an exit strategy like, all right, so couple months, then I'll let the staff know, and then the congregation, we can work. And they said, tell people next week. Wow. <laughs> I was like, are you sure? And um, I think they got freaked out. And, well, I don't think. I know they got freaked out. And so, yeah, the next week, I stood up there and said, I tried to speak straight from mm-hmm. the heart, and I quit. Um and I, I mean, I taught a few more times because they, yeah. you know, I agreed to sort of st- stay on for a little while so they could look for somebody. But yeah, no, I had zero backup plan. Um, actually, yeah, I, even a friend of mine, uh, before all this happened, because I'd been thinking about it for a year, pretty much, had been working on me. He's like, you got to have a backup plan. And I just didn't have the, I didn't have, if you're working on a backup plan, freaking quit already. Um, and I, 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 so I didn't, it just all came in a flood and so yeah, I jumped out without a parachute. 
Yeah. What year was this, Ken? Yeah, it was two years ago, this February, I gave my last sermon okay. at Mars Hill. So that gives you, I think that's okay. the time frame. <laughs> and as an aside, how, mm. how does this church manage to produce multi, at least, at least two pastors now that are kind of like, yeah, this isn't, this isn't. Three. There's a third. Three. Yeah, Rob was there, and then Shane Hips was there. He was kind of a blip on the radar, um, but same same kind of journey. And then me. How does it produce it? Because, uh, oh man, how that a freaking good question. Now we're sort of maybe peeling back that particular curtain of this pseudo progressive church. <laughs> It had to be born into this part of the world, you know, at just the right time. It was perfect. As people were, were getting fed up with sort of traditional models and language and even doctrines, and um, they were craving something else. And, but the funny thing about Rob as a teacher is that he's very uh, warm, entertaining, and funny, so it's very easy to not hear what he's saying. And he changed enormously in however long he was there. And he doesn't talk much about that, um, or he occasionally does, but he changed, and, and very quickly. But he wasn't really interested in being explicit about that, or even telling people that they should change. So you had to really listen um, on a deeper level to what was actually being said. Uh, and, and I think once it was an institution, then, then institutional concerns take over, which is just follow the money. And then, then the tension was between, should we tell the truth or should we tell people what they want to hear so they'll keep putting money in the, you know, in the offering plate, and Rob wasn't interested in that game. I wasn't interested in that game, but there were a number of people who were. <laughs> um, but they keep hiring men who are on this path. Well, not anymore. I was the last, so they made. They uh, learned their uh, lesson. Yeah, they they said, and I warned. I, I sort of on the way out said, "This is probably what's going to happen. You're going to." go in the opposite direction. They said, no, we're not, no, we're not. And that's what they did. And I don't even blame them. I mean, uh, this is what institutions do. They care about, I remember one time uh, um, an, uh, a leader there told me, at least once a month, you have to give a sermon that basically is why people should go here and why we're better than the church down the street, because that's the way a market economy works. And I thought, you're right. I can't do it. In fact, it, it grows exactly. And that's the problem with, with, with even the kinds of teachings I was bringing while I was there. On one level, same with Rob and same with Shane, we were telling people, you don't have to come to church to have a rich, uh, fulfilling spiritual life. You don't have to come here. And that, which is what which is what was kind of attractive about going there. But um, I guess the thinking is that's just not sustainable. You know, you're going to work yourself out of a job. <laughs> when I was reading the book, I was struck by the fact that you stayed with it, that you stayed with the Bible, 
I know you had um, intermittent times where you weren't with it, but you stayed, if I'm, unless I'm mistaken, or unless there's something to update, update me on now after you've written the book, I was struck by the fact that you stayed with Christianity, that you stayed with a form of it, that you kept pursuing God, that you kept spirituality as an important aspect. Because it, it's fairly common now, too, for people to just bail, to just quit on yeah. everything. Why was it important for you as you're going through this? And I mean, you're not, you're experiencing like a dismantling on a whole other level because the average person who's experiencing some deep evolution in their faith, they can keep it really private. They, they can just kind of, they don't have to get up every Sunday morning and preach. Yeah. How, how did you stay with it and why? Well, I don't think I stayed with it. I mean, if I'm just direct, I think I left Christianity. And, um, and what did I leave for? Uh, or what survived from it? What survived from it, I think, is the mythic level or layer. I'm still comfortable talking about Jesus and the Bible and the stories, and, um, but n- not because I'm an insider mm. and that it has, and that I'm interested in other people joining this faith. And when I say faith, I'm using it in the, right now, in the traditional sense as a set of beliefs. I actually don't care. I, I, have, I don't care what people believe about Jesus. I don't care what people believe about doctrine. Um, I find most of what people claim are their beliefs are um, ways of propping up their egoic persona so they don't have to look at the hard things. Um, that's not always true, but uh, I think a lot, of times, a lot of times it is. So I stuck with spirituality, I think. Um, I stuck with, um, uh, I guess what I would call a more soul path, which is a path of descent, which is uh, part of the symbol of Jesus, the descent and return. I mean, death and resurrection is obviously nothing new in uh, religious imagery. Um, Christians act like they invented it, but it, it had been there for many centuries in various religious paths. I believe in that. I believe in descent and return, the death of who you think you are and the birth of something new. Um, that's the, the, what has survived or um, come out the other side. And like in, the, in the book, I use the metaphor of unloading the camel. Um, I'm like using two metaphors in the book, but one of them is that if you want to pass through the eye of the needle, so to speak, you have to unload everything off the camel. Well, what counts as everything? And I mean, for me, this maybe is not true for everybody, it was the beliefs. Beliefs, doctrines, um, in other words, everything that makes up Christianity. Like, you're a Christian if you believe A. I don't care, I'm setting that one down. Um, And see what's left and stand there with kind of like as a naked camel in the unknown. Um, so that's the, that, that to me, I'm not saying I've transformed <laughs> or something like that. I think one has to be very careful, even working too hard to try to identify where they think they are on, a, on the journey. But 
the archetypal patterns are that's just the way it is. You, you die to um, who you think you are in the world and the things that have um, given your life meaning at a certain point and you, you step solidly into the unknown. And if it's truly the unknown, then you really don't know what the hell you're doing. And it's at that point, I think, the soul is alive. And, um, and you begin to look around with the eyes of the heart. And uh, it's at that point, I think, something new can begin to, to spring forth. So... So what I don't do you, know if that resonates. It, it does. It makes um, it makes sense, and and I'll just keep telling people to read the book too because you mm. get into that <laughs> I think quite a bit. What do you pursue now? You haven't abandoned the idea of spirituality. You haven't the, abandoned the idea of a of a god, um, and you haven't quit on the idea that there is another level to this life beyond just physical. So what do you pursue now? Because one of the things organized religions do really well is give you a pretty clear path on what to do now with your new interests. Yeah. Well, uh, well, I'll tell you sort of, I sort of think about four windows, <laughs> um, four paths that are part of my own life. Um, so I think about a word like wholeness. So I pursue wholeness and there are all kinds of methods and methodologies and ways of doing that so the the cliche way of saying it is that i'm trying to do my work um Mm -hmm. i i'm doing uh programs and retreats and and taking a hard look at my patterns and you know uh, seeing uh therapists or guides um i'm trying to take a hard look i call that wholeness and looking at unfinished business from um earlier levels or stages or however you want to think, unfinished, unincorporated, unintegrated aspects of my life. Um, so that's one area. The, the, the second is what I call soul, which is um, maybe what Thomas Merton would call true self, the deep self, that's Jung. Um, and soul work is uh, descent-oriented work into the unconscious, dreams, numinous encounters, um, beginning to ask the question, who am I? Is there anything beneath the egoic self that tends to run the show? Um, uh, that's soul work. I could say a lot more about that because that's kind of where, where I've been um, most, that's been most pressing in my life the last couple of years. Interesting. And then the, the third would be spirit. So that's transcendence. Um, probably an area of weakness for me right now. Uh, but any kind of meditation, practice, prayer, it can take the form of some traditional forms of Christianity, but all spiritual paths offer transcendence, where you transcend who you think you are in the world, and there's a connection or union with God. Or, um, and I think that's an important and healthy way of being human. It's not quite the soul path in, in my thinking. And the fourth is service, and this is maybe more of a question more than anything else. How can I serve? And I don't always have good answers for that, but um, I think our world is getting sicker. It's blind. It's greedy. It's destroying itself. It's run by uh, tyrants and, um, and immature uh, junior hires 
uh, psychologically. And that just means we're going to keep getting sicker. So I want to be like the whole uh, Native American sort of uh, myth of returning from the wilderness with your medicine bag. And I think that's a good image. Like we all have medicine that we, we're responsible for cultivating, recovering, discovering, and trying to find um, uh, ways to, to serve. Uh, to plant that medicine in the world uh, because it's really in... I mean, there are some days I don't really want to look at the news because it's really... it's so disheartening. And um, Ken Wilber says, we live in an age of nihilism or narcissism and sometimes in the same day. Yeah, that's really insightful. And... I don't want to live like that, even though there are days when I am living like that. So wholeness, spirit, soul, and service. And service. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, I, I'm going to ask you to put on more of the, your intellectual, less personal hat and just ob, ob, like observe. It'll be a little personal, but um, I was talking to someone recently <clears throat> about this evolution that some people in the church, the Christian church are going through. And this person was making the comment, like, you know, I actually think one of the reasons that Germany in world war two allowed for a Hitler to take power because the church sort of died and there wasn't an institutional representation of morality or anything like that. And, I'm curious what your thoughts are on that kind of thing, because I don't think it's hard to look at the church right now, the Christian church, and come up with a lot of things that it does wrong and a lot of the damage that it's done. But when someone, like, when, when, we, when I look at this evolution that I think is happening, where does it? What institutionally gets created, if anything, and what does society need and lose when you don't have that organized thing? Does that make sense? It's a clumsy question. Well, well, it definitely makes sense. Uh, and I, my first thought is I'm probably the wrong person to ask. Uh, because if you just look at evangelical Christianity, in terms of being a voice um, that speaks out against bigotry and ethnocentric um, uh, security and safety, it's, it's bankrupt. It's morally bankrupt. It's not that voice. Um, you can hope that it will change, but it's apparently it's dug its grave and it's lying in it. And we knew this already in the 80s with the moral majority. And let's get in bed with politics and let's be more concerned about preserving a figment of our imagination, which is that America at one time was a Christian nation. Let's preserve this um, myth, this uh, uh, fantasy is probably the best word for it. And it's going to go down. Um, I can't. I don't see a lot of hope for change. Although people like Brian McLaren and kind of these emergent sort of Christians, progressive Christians, still have a lot of faith in the institutional, the power of the institution, and they might be right. 
I don't have as much faith in that um, because you can spend a lot of time saying, how might we be a more healthy, whole, life-giving institution? Meanwhile, young people, millennials, it seems to be the case, aren't even going. Yeah, so, right. Um, so do you see a world in which this... Um, Let's, let's just let's just say that there are millions of people who are pursuing some form of spirituality and they are not um, turned off by spirituality and the idea that I have to be either a devout Christian, Muslim, Buddhist, or an atheist. Those are my only options. Do you see a world in which there is a a, an institution or an organization of sorts that brings these people together? Or is it just a lot of individuals now that do their thing? Mm. Well, geez. Uh, well, you're speaking to something that I sometimes find troubling because part of our American fantasy is the self-made man or woman, usually man. <laughs> uh, and we sort of apply that to spirituality, too. We think, I can be anything I want, therefore I can think anything I want, and I can have a religion that's just a private creation. Um, and I think that's happening more and more. It, it's troubling just in the sense of um, it's then very hard to, to um, think about then a healthy culture. Because right. that's what a community, that's what, you know, communities create cultures. And um, what then do we have in common yeah. with my neighbor? Or is it just all this privatized, you know, I have kind of, it's like your internet browser. Is, right. Yeah. Like I do my thing and I'm, I'm, I do my best to be as kind of quasi polite person out in the public sphere. And then I come home and I get on Facebook and I say what I really think. And I tell my close friends what I really think. And we all just sort of walk around, never really telling each other what we really think and never really organizing around a thing that we all really think. And in the positive sense, that's what maybe the religious institutions previously have provided. Mm -hmm. But I don't like, I, did, I don't even have any imagination for what the next, yeah. what this group of millennials and younger will do with a desire for spirituality that can't necessarily find a home in the existing institutions. Yeah. And actually, imagination is a wonderful word for it because I have a feeling that something new wants to be born in the world. So Carl Jung has a, has a theory, theory about the axial age. Um, and like, let's take the, the image of Jesus for a second. He, basically, he's saying that in the grand scheme of time, the old gods and goddesses, and even the stories and myths, even though Jung loved myths, had lost their symbolic power to transform, which is what happens to all powerful symbols. Over time, they lose their power to transform. Mm. And, and, and about at that moment, then you have this person of Jesus that gets blown up into an archetypal image of transformation, death and resurrection. And people were drawn to that. And it, you know, it pulled, eventually the entire Roman Empire was drawn to such a symbol. How did that happen? And by the way, Rome was extraordinarily pluralistic. 
if you had a God, they could be, you know, fine. Have whatever God you want. They were not like dictate, other than there was a time when they were trying to enforce in worship of the emperor, but mostly they were just pluralists. And you would think, well, that would last forever. You know, why not? But for some reason, it had run its course, and up comes the image of Jesus as a, as a, as a symbol of transformation, and it, and it had tremendous power. How much power did it have? It's still a religious symbol 2,000 years later. Mm. The question is right now, has it lost its power? And same with the other world religions. In, in my intuition is that in some ways it has. Mm. It's become now a badge that you wear that's about identifying with a group, ethnocentric consciousness, and it very little power to transform. Um, and, and if we take Jung's theory, as symbols die, the deep unconscious is always producing new ones. So something else maybe wants to be born in the world. And so that's me, me trying to back yeah. away from yeah. having the answers. And maybe that that's okay. You have to go into the wilderness um, and have no images, ideas, and symbols for something new to happen. And then out of the burning bush comes a voice. And I'm not saying I, I've experienced that or no, but I wonder if something like that is happening culturally. Like, and if it's true that the soul um, or the deep self needs um, metaphors, symbols, images in order to have it, uh, in order to come to life or have something of itself mirrored back or uh, as a catalyst for change, then new symbols will come into being. Interesting. And maybe, maybe like, and here are some names. Uh, Thomas Berry, he's a Christian monk. He died uh, a few years ago now. He basically says the story of the cosmos itself or in other words, what we would call evolution, mm -hmm. is the new archetypal image or symbol of transformation. And oh, so he's taking evolution, yeah, he's taking evolution as a symbolic image saying, this is how change happens. And this is the new sacred story. So forget about Genesis or the Epic of Gilgamesh or whatever. Those, have, those can still have some power, by the way, in my view. But the universe, the story of the universe is, itself is now a kind of sacred story and symbol that can help us evolve and change and grow. Fascinating, Kent. Uh, what do you teach your kids? Mm, now you're asking like the big questions. You Th know? This, if, is, if I'm gonna... <laughs> this is the big question. This is, this is like a write a book about this question. Well, actually, actually, my wife and I were just talking about that the other day. I mean, what is the number one question I get? What do I teach my kids? Really? Yeah. Yeah. Because people are scared shitless that they're gonna, their kids are going to grow up with nothing, have nothing to push against. Um, and yet they're also deathly afraid to hand them a toxic, narrow God. So we've erred on the side. Um, you know, we tend to be a bit private about um, about this question. So uh, share, I have share to say as that little as, kind as of... or as much as you like. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Mm -hmm. um, we have erred on the side of um, not teaching them very much, particularly about beliefs and doctrines. I mean, uh, just, like I grew up deathly afraid of the rapture, 
you know, being sucked up to heaven. My kids have never heard of that. In fact, one of them was asking the other day, I had to explain it as if it was like, they're like, as if I was talking some kind of foreign language. <laughs> so, and my kids don't know the Bible all that well, even though they've been to Israel, they've walked in these places. Um, and I think there's a kind of cultural loss there, just in terms of stories, because we do not have very good stories floating around. Um, we basically have one meta story, which is you're awesome if you are famous. And that is so paper thin, it's, it's unbelievable. But, you know, as I, uh, what do I teach my kids? I want them to have a more world-centric uh, view of life, that you're not the only person on the planet. And some of that involves travel, which is, I understand that's kind of a privileged thing. Um, but I, I'm also drawn to the classics, like what are the old stories um, what do you hear in them? Um, and I'm, I haven't been doing a great job of that. Uh, but I do not, I never felt like personally, I got to get them inside or I haven't felt that in a while. I got to get them inside the, the church. You know, Richard, Richard Rohr says you need a container so that you can basically discover the contents. And he's a great example. His container with, was Catholicism but he went deep enough to find the mystical, esoteric, uh, lower, deep in the well. I'm not sure if my kids have such a great container. And it used to be like, you got to get them a container even if they reject it. Yeah. I just don't know. I don't know if we're in that place. Well, Maybe I, something else is called for. I wonder about this. I have two kids. And um, it's nothing like having kids to force you, you even say this in the book, I think, to force you to come to terms with some things or to at least begin to question some of the things you're, you may need to come to terms with, because, uh, this goes back to the old, like what's next institutionally. Um, cause you're right. I mean, the people who are in this camp and, and I don't, I want to be really careful to not judge people who are not, who, who do still send their kids to church, who do go to church and who haven't shifted outside of the church. That's great. And, can be really beautiful um, for people who are more on the path you're describing where you're not bailing on spirituality or God or the pursuit of some um, something beyond just the physical. There are such benefits to those containers and to those institutions that provide stability and frameworks for kids that are helpful. And, um, I, I'm aware of how personally stunted my imagination is for what that might look like for mm -hmm. for this next generation where you and I think we're just maybe a generation that's kind of stuck in the middle. Yeah. Um, yeah. On some of these things. I, I wonder if we're a generation mm -hmm. that's stuck in the middle on some of these things and if our kids won't be able to make more sense of it. Um, but but you and I grew up in, in an environment that also said that without a a Christian God, without a God, morality cannot exist. That was kind of a big mm -hmm. logical one-two punch that you would provide someone who wasn't a Christian. That well, where does morality come from? You have to have yeah. you have to have a non-societal based morality system that is based on a divine being, because otherwise, World War II Hitler, the society mm -hmm. can go wrong. And I do think there's something, there's something, there's some merit in that, but geez, 
that's kind of like it was the either or and that's even still ringing around in my head that that's kind of like all you're left with where well you either you either have a god that you teach your kids about or society starts to kill each other those are your options yeah well i mean it just turns out that's false (laughs) um (laughs) yeah and some of the the more challenging ethical thinkers on the planet are people like Peter Singer, who there's probably not a, uh, a deist or a theist, that's a better way to say it, theist bone in his body, yet he has some of the more profound philosophical arguments for altruism, love, uh, tolerance, um, uh, being a generative presence in the world. So it's just, it's just not true. And this is but I, I get the tension um, if you're, because it's just so much easier to say, God said it, here are the rules, boom. Um, but, you know, not even America was founded with such a fantasy. You know, the founding fathers were, you know, people often say they were deists, but some of them are what we would call agnostics and some of the more influential ones. Um, and they weren't exactly saying God said it Therefore, and not everything about the Constitution, by the way, is very ethical or fair or moral, but these were highly creative um, people who were thinking about what makes a just society, uh, what makes a more fair society. Uh, not that it was fair for everybody, it was fair for just a few. Um, but yeah, I think we're, we are entering kind of a brave new world. And if you could think, uh, I'm not, I don't want to sound too optimistic, but for the first time maybe ever, we have access to spirituality's greatest teachings that are uh, trans-religious, that are, or maybe a better way of saying it, are, are, there's a kind of pantheism that's helpful, where we're able to say for the first time, hey, Buddhism sort of says this, and it sounds a lot like Christianity here, which sounds a lot like Hinduism here, which sounds a lot like Native American spirituality. Maybe they're Maybe there is a rich tradition. Um, maybe there is a, uh, a container um, in which to put a lot of these things, which also gives us the responsibility to say, um, to be self-critical, I think, of the ways in which religion has gone off the rails. So maybe it's twofold. We can say, definitely we've gone off the rails here, but there are seeds of, um, that help human beings be the best they can be in the world. And we have to take this seriously. We can't pretend what we're missing in our culture is wisdom. And where can you find it? Not on the freaking internet. It's, there's no wisdom at all. And we don't even have the wisdom to know where to look. Mm-hmm. So we, I don't think we can dismiss uh, traditions, stories, myths, symbols, um, and great spiritual teachers that have gone before us. I think we have a responsibility to say, um, to incorporate, integrate, and pass that stuff on to the next generation. Because uh, if it's just a generation of Googling every time you have a question about life, that's a very thin existence. I'm not accusing millennials of that, but um, I'm just saying that's no way to proceed. One of the, um, I know we're, we've been talking for a really long time, but yeah. one of the things I loved in the book, Kent, was you you did such a nice job of listing some of those examples of things that uh fractured your worldview 
I wonder what you would say to people, I'm sure you get this question a lot, who are experiencing some of those things now. Mm. Maybe they just found out that evolution is actually real, or at least at minimum the Earth isn't 6,000 years old and they can't take creation literally. Or maybe they've decided that being gay isn't a sin. Or maybe they've decided this construct of sin isn't what they thought it was or isn't doing what they thought it should do or almost doesn't even matter but they cause the chinks in the armor and they cause you to question and it's terrifying and it's really disconcerting what do you what do you tell people who are in that who are experiencing that who are in the early stages oh man um if you are feeling like afraid, lost, confused, that, I hate to say it, but that is the way it is. That's, that's my experience. In fact, um, the great, so even if you think about Joseph Campbell saying uh, in his uh, Hero's Journey, which maybe is a bit overused now, um, but the first step is to leave home and to really, really leave home, which is what I've been trying to slowly do, is scary, frightening, lonely, confusing, and there are no quick answers. And my, my, the first thing I would say is that's the way it is. Uh, you're actually in good company. Um, so the big patterns are, you know, social uh, social identity or social acceptance is no longer the pressing concern. But you start to, to wonder and move toward authenticity. And if it's really uh, leaving home and moving toward authenticity, you're going to feel alone. Um, and that gets mixed with a sense of calling. Like, I don't mean calling like, go be a doctor. I mean like a calling to the depths. Like, I don't know why this is going to mess up my life, but... I'm going to keep walking into the darkness. Um, and there's a sense, I think, even where, where people are willing to risk everything. This is what like, if I could find encouraging. Like if someone is, is uh, gay and they're just starting to say, I don't want to hide this anymore. And I don't know if I can stay inside this pr pretty small world. They're risking everything. And I just think that is that takes so much courage. If there's any like comfort in that, is that that is the big story of change. It almost doesn't happen without it, in my view. Um, okay, I have another super meta, meta uh, like a meta level question, and it has to do with kids on this front. Because you look at the Joseph Campbell model, the hero's journey, and people leaving, and, and the, the archetype of change is painful, it's slow. Mm. And so much of what our generation like Generation X, Y, Younger, so much of the work that we are doing is undoing. Mm -hmm. And I suppose it's probably that way for a lot of generations, but I do think that there are some more extreme examples than others, and I, I do think that generationally we are undoing more than previously, at least the last few generations. And so, so much of the effort and energy is just like offsetting, is just undoing and so so many of the narrative and the constructs and the language we have for evolving does start with leaving the tribe 
breaking the thing that was put together. And this, I wonder what my kids will do and experience if they don't have that much baggage. So this is what I would say. Um, I'm drawn to the Greek notion of apocalypso, which is where we get like apocalypse. What that means is death and renewal or destruction and renewal. And we're in that age. We're again in an apocalyptic or apocalypso death and renewal. It's always, it almost happens at the same time. What are, what's dying? The industrial growth mentality that has gotten us into this mess mixed with the religious institutions and ideas that have helped sustain this industrial growth model, which is, it's our world for the taking. We can do with it what we please. And, um, and it's, a, it's the myth of progress where we're just simply, things are getting better and better and better. That thing is ending. So um, like when I think about my own kids, what might they destroy? They might not destroy like church ideas or even theology. What they may end up in the ashes of our society end up destroying is what I'm describing, this industrial growth mechanism of progress. And they, they will say to us, you are lying. You lied to us. You told us we could take whatever we wanted out of the earth and there wouldn't be consequences. You told me the aluminum that goes in my phone is just a neutral thing. It turns out it's poisoning us and it's going to poison my kids. And I don't know. In other words, I'm trying to take it out of theology and saying what might happen is that the whole mentality that has kept our society is maybe what the next generation is going to say, hell no. And they may have to say it in the ashes and in the collapse of what we would call Western society. Um, as institutions, besides the church, political institutions, you think America is going to be an empire forever? Yeah. You know, we know that's not the case. So in the ashes of whatever that is, I imagine our kids and grandkids will say, um, hell no. The, it's... And you already get hints of it, you know. Uh, the prophets of our time are saying the universe is cooperative. The, and who are the prophets? The, the uh, you know, the physicists and the physicist mystics out there saying mm -hmm. everything is interrelated. So you cut the mountain, you cut off a mountaintop in West Virginia, you're going to poison your grandkids. That's just Crazy. the way it is. Wow. Um, so maybe that's more of what they'll say, give the, give the middle finger to, mm -hmm. than, um, than sort of like just ideas about God. I don't know. That's, that's me riffing, and I could be way off, but that's my intuition. I love that riff. Um, and I, I appreciate you spending this much time. Real quick, where can people find you so they can buy your book, Bitten by a Camel, Leaving the Church and Finding God? You've got a podcast called Hints and Guesses. Um, are you doing this stuff professionally? Do you have a day job? How can people get in touch with you and follow your work? Yeah, thanks. Uh, they can go to my website, kentdobson.com, which I'm just sort of re uh, refreshing as we speak. Um, I teach at a little community here. It's uh, like a progressive, I don't know what you would call it. It's not a church. It's a spiritual gathering. I do that about half the weekends. It's, it meets out in Grand Haven. It's called C3. Um, yeah, and I have my podcasting by the book from Amazon, and I will be doing more retreats and programs in the coming year. 
because really what I'm drawn to, we didn't have uh, time to talk about today, is um, nature-based uh, work. Oh, interesting. Um, talking talk about, about the kind about of that in the book. yeah, talking about the kind of stuff that we're talking about, but out in the wild world where the world itself becomes the teacher and begins to mirror back to us um, our own junk and also our own opportunities for growth. Um, and plus, it's just true that if we live completely disconnected from nature, we're disconnected from soul, from divinity, from God, um, whatever you mean by God. And so some of my work is, I think, rewilding the human experience. Um, and, you know, if there's a church of the future, I hope my kids um, call it Yellowstone or, <laughs> you know, something like that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking to me, Ken. I've, this has been such a fun conversation. Yeah. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. Thanks so much for the invitation.